welcome to the first episode of JobsCast. Thank you so much for tuning in. What is JobsCast, you ask? To nip an obvious confusion point in the bud, it is not a podcast about Steve Jobs. It's about jobs in general, the working world, the predicament of the proletariat. It's not about finding jobs or preparing for jobs or getting jobs. And it's definitely not an economics or finance podcast, but it's about what it's like to live out, to maintain, to struggle through, to love, or to abandon our work. A big motivation for this podcast was that I just had no idea what working was like for a lot of my friends and family. I mean, pretty much everyone I know works at least 40 hours a week, generally more than that. And at most, if you talk to a loved one about their job, you maybe get a 30-minute description of an eight-hour day. Now, I don't think anyone wants to talk about or listen to what it's like to spend an afternoon clicking and typing in an inbox or spreadsheet cells, but there are so many other subtle intimacies and intricacies in terms of how people are in relation to their jobs that can be empowering to know about. Though quarantine may have done some elucidating, it's difficult for a lot of us to imagine the person we know, mainly as our couch-dwelling Netflix partner, spearheading a technical conversation about a missed KPI, which, what even is that? And of course, a lot of people choose to erect a thick barrier between work time and off time, and that means not really talking about work when off the clock. I get it. I get that many people are tired after work and feel some relief from compartmentalizing, but... Again, I think it can be illuminating to hear candid, honest accounts of what work really is for people, both in terms of what is actually happening and what people are really thinking and feeling about it. I hope to zoom in on people's grand and granular responses to the many stimuli we're barraged with at work. And my loose hypothesis here is that if I'm able to do a good job of collecting and exhibiting these anecdotes and data, then it might be some combination of comforting, interesting, entertaining, and useful for you to hear. So the job of JobsCast then is to hold up for inspection the stories we tell ourselves and others about our jobs and the stories we automatically assign to the jobs of others. We will address questions like, what hopes and fears and expectations do we bring into workplaces as the inventors, designers, and consumers of goods and services in a world significantly governed by the rules of capitalism? What's great about our work and what sucks? What do we want to keep? What do we want to change? How has the working world evolved? How is work activating or hobbling the values we want to live by and the experiences we'd like to have? These are just some of the juicy questions I hope to bite into. The plan is to have one-on-one conversations with people from all sorts of professional backgrounds that you can listen to right here every Monday. Barbers, plumbers, custodians, clerks, shoe shiners, engineers, cab drivers, lawyers, coaches, priests, doctors, I hope to hear from all of them, and I hope to make JobsCast a comfortable space in which guests will reflect deeply on the relationship between their job, on the one hand, and their identity and feelings and aspirations on the other. JobsCast will alternate each week between conversations with leading thinkers on the topic of work and dialogues with the workers themselves about their on-the-ground experiences. Okay, that's it. We're going to do this now. My guest today is Dr. Joanne B. Chula. Joanne is a world-class academic, and I'm thrilled to have had a conversation with her to inaugurate JobsCast. She is currently a professor at the Rutgers Business School and the director of the Institute for Ethical Leadership. A philosopher by training, Joanne has authored, co-authored, or edited nine books and numerous other papers and articles. Her exquisite 2000 book, The Working Life, The Promise and Betrayal of Modern Work, is the fulcrum of today's conversation. Our exchange doesn't even come close to exhausting what she gets into in great detail in the book, so I strongly recommend you pick up a copy of The Working Life. It's a prescient, pertinent, and clear-eyed tour of the working world through history that I found consistently fascinating throughout. In our talk, Joanne and I get into the past 100 years of work history in the United States, the rise of job insecurity, the origins of the American dream, the value of certain undergraduate majors, the relationship between free time, work, and leisure, the age-old human desire for robots, work-saving versus work-making technologies, the dreaded what-do-you-do question, the role religion has played in shaping how we think about work, and the importance of saying yes to experiences and opportunities. The first 10 minutes or so are pretty much a condensed lecture from Dr. Chula on U.S. history. After that, the conversation really begins. So without any further preamble, I present to you my conversation from June 15th with Dr. Joanne B. Chula. Joanne, thanks for being a part of JobsCast. My pleasure. I would love it if you could walk us through 
some of the prominent ways of thinking about work in U.S. culture uh, really over the past century. Your book, The Working Life, goes much deeper and further back in history. But for now, take us through some of the dominant ways of thinking about work going back to 1920. Okay. Well, you know, if we look at that period of history in America, we had a lot of uh, immigrants coming into the country from mostly from Europe at that period of time. And work, of course, was industrial work. It was work that people did in hopes of gaining a better life. So when we look at the 20s, there are a whole lot of Americans engaged in what we now call the American dream, the idea that this was a place you could escape poverty and you could come and work hard. In those days, you could work hard and actually save up some money and actually have each generation get better. Um, this is the era of my grandparents. And the ideology was, you know, you worked, you saved, and you did better for your kids. So it's, it's an interesting period of time because in some ways it's a benchmark to the way that we think about or really the kind of dream of America, of what people in some parts of the world still think of America as, is that place where you can anybody can go and make it. So that's really different. But then we get to like the 30s and there's a kind of disillusionment that goes on because of course you had the stock market crash in 29. Um, but we had a period of history where those same people found themselves out of work uh, we saw that there was a really uh, interesting and powerful government response by Roosevelt. Uh, so people ended up eventually getting back to their jobs. That's why looking at the Great Depression is, is something interesting to learn from when we think about what the future might look like now uh, with the economic devastation of this pandemic. So in the 30s, people were somewhat disillusioned, but still the, the powerful lure of the American dream and the fact that work would get you ahead and make your life better was very, very powerful. Of course, we get to the 40s and we get to the war, World War II. Um, and here's where things start getting very interesting in terms of changes in the meaning of work. So after World War II, um, some interesting things happened. You had the development of large corporations and the growth of a white collar workforce. So all of a sudden work had changed quite a bit for people. They were moving out of factories into the offices. I mean, there was still factory work, obviously, but they were working in offices. And one of the seminal books of that period that's fascinating to read even today was a book called The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. And that came out in the early 1950s. And what was interesting about that book is after the war, the one thing that people didn't want to do was work in uh, bureaucratic organizations. And yet that was where work was. And so the man in the gray flannel suit, we often think it's about someone who wants to conform. It's actually about someone who doesn't want to conform. And yet in the 50s, people did conform. We had some economic prosperity. Uh, we had the baby boomers were born uh, at the end of the war and into the 50s. Then we moved to the 60s, another great period of disillusionment, because in the 60s, obviously, we had the civil rights movement. Uh, we had the anti-war movements. Uh, I know that was the anti-war movement was something I was very involved in when I was in school. And so those were periods of social unrest where work all of a sudden, uh, there was a kind of rejection of work. And it's particularly fascinating because, of course, this is the era of baby boomers. And so the baby boomers in their seminal years were actually kind of rejecting conformity to the norms that we think of, of you know, wearing for men wearing a tie and going to work. They were rejecting it. But then, of course, the world that got made today was made by those people. So I always like to think about uh, when I work with uh, corporate types, you know, who are in their very expensive suits that, you know, a lot of them were probably wearing bell bottoms and had long hair <laughs> in the 60s. But they're pretty much running all of the businesses, uh, you know, major roles in businesses. And actually, if you look at leadership in the world, in, in the U.S. today, the U.S. is being run by a lot of old people. 
<laughs> it's surprising how many are in their 70s. So we get past the baby boom in the post-Vietnam War era of the 1970s. Um, the 1970s, the really seminal book that came out in that period of history was a book uh, by Jim Collins called Work in America. And it was done under the Nixon administration. And it was a study of the blue collar blues and the white collar woes. So the 70s was a period where people were really reflecting a lot on, on work and there were kind of, there was a kind of unhappiness in the 70s. Um, Jimmy Carter, who's president then, said it was a kind of malaise that the country was in. I think after the exhaustion of, of Vietnam and, of course, the assassinations of, um, of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, everybody seemed kind of tired and fed up. And there were lots of questions about the meaning of work in the 70s. There's a lot of really interesting literature on the meaning of work in the 70s. So people were really thinking about work and the role in their lives in that period of history. We get to the 80s, the early 80s, you've got a kind of economic recession uh, going on in the beginning of the 80s. Ronald Reagan becomes president. And in the 80s, we get almost a kind of throwback to um, the world that had some of the values of the 50s. Entrepreneurship became the most important thing. Uh, Reagan talked about it all the time. Uh, getting out of uh, the, the recession that we had been in was very important to people. So it's a period of time where we kind of reverted back to a status quo. You go to work, you do your job. Um, let's not complain about it. The 80s was a little bit of a throwback. Then we get to the 90s. And um, in my book, I write about the white men in suits. One of the most powerful things that happens in the 1990s. And I remember watching, I, I got this expression from watching the news. And I think Peter Jennings was doing this story. But in the 1990s, a lot of people who had worked in corporations for years, the big corporations like AT&T and other places, you know, the ethos at that time is you went to work someplace and you stayed there till they gave you a gold watch when you retired. But what happened at the end of the 90s is, is, is we begin the beginning of the 90s is we start to see that these big corporations that sort of gave people lifetime employment, all of a sudden were letting go of the white men in suits. And the white men in suits were the middle class people who got braces for their kids and belonged to country clubs and all of that. They were central parts of the American dream. They were, they were what you were if you made it in America, and now they were being laid off. So that was a very, very uh, big shakeup period for how people think about work. And from that time on, there became a kind of uncertainty about employment that we still see today, even before uh, the coronavirus and even before all the problems we're having now. Um, employment was incredibly low, but even though unemployment was incredibly low in, well, going back to January of this year, people still felt an insecurity about work because what had happened in the 90s was that the social contract of work, the social contract of work was if you did your job well, you got to keep it. That was broken because all sorts of things in the global economy and all sorts of things in business could lead to you losing your job. And of course, unions had fallen apart. Uh, very few people belonged to unions. So most workers were pretty much subject to the whims of employment at will and to their employers. So job insecurity even existed when we were when we had very low unemployment. Now, let's look at some of these generations coming up through these periods, let's say, going back to the early 90s. Um, young people, well, for me, young people, I'm a baby. <laughs> Um, so everybody's a young person. But if we think of uh, the millennials and some of these other generations, regardless of what the economic situation was in regard to unemployment, they grew up with an idea that that you don't go work for a company and then retire from it. So they, in a way, were always on the lookout for the fact that they may not be able to keep jobs. And certainly I noticed it in my students that, you know, young people today have lots of jobs uh, early on 
and and they keep moving around throughout their careers. So the whole notion of tenure and employment is completely different today. Um, other things that had changed is obviously our, our workforce got more educated and they expected more from their employers. And this created a lot of interesting issues because two things were also going on at the same time. Education and expectation of what you would get out of work started increasing at the same time that employers started using more technologies to do jobs, which had the effect of often making a lot of jobs less interesting uh, for people who wanted interesting work. So we've had a lot of very, very interesting trends as we look at these uh, generations. But I would say the one thing that, that unites everyone from the millennials on up is this notion that uh, don't trust your employer because uh, work can be quite fleeting. And that, I think, has profound uh, effects on how people think of what work is actually going to mean in their lives. So anyway, that's just a, a little, little mini history of, of what I think has happened in terms of trends and how people have thought about work. Yeah, you you did a stunning job of condensing 100 years of history into 10 minutes. <laughs> that was that was excellent. You mentioned education. We think about college, we think about higher education as being uh, job training, uh, and then maybe the competing vision of it is more of the liberal arts ideal, which is uh, the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake. And it's it's interesting because you mention how uh, the the social contract for millennials seems to have broken, where you can't just show up and do a good job and expect to be at a corporation for 40, 50 years. My generation, I think, has been forced in a lot of ways to be much more nimble and mobile. But it makes me wonder now when we think about education, if we know that there are no guarantees with work, uh, is it is it possible that to the degree that education is pursued, I'm wondering if you think that there there may be uh, more of that pursuit of the liberal arts ideal of knowledge for knowledge's sake. Now, of course, I know it depends on the person, it depends on what they want to do. But I am curious about your thoughts on this on this sort of old debate of higher ed as job training versus or I should say, and or uh, as the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake. Mm -hmm. Well, let me put on my Aristotle hat for a minute. <laughs> Perfect. Now, <laughs> here's one of my favorite parts of Aristotle is he talks about the Greek, the ancient Greeks talked about the liberal and the servile arts and the liberal arts were the arts uh, that involved, you know, thinking and the servile arts were more the physical things where you make things, etc. And he says the liberal arts educate people for leisure. Mm. Now, that might sound very strange. Um, I, I'm sure parents don't want to spend all that money educating their <laughs> children for leisure. But but if you think about it, and but what he meant by leisure is leisure is the use of your freedom and your free time to do what you want to do. So just think about what you learn in liberal arts. I mean, liberal arts education makes life more interesting for you and it opens up more possibilities. I mean, if you never studied art or been introduced to some kinds of music or history or other things, just walking around in the world is a little less interesting. So Aristotle saw the liberal arts as education for life. And the problem with schools today, universities, is they keep trying to sell it as education for a job. And that's not what it's for. It's education of the whole person that would go out into a job. And obviously, I mean, I'm in a business school now and I shouldn't say this, but I will. Um, I, I, I think undergraduate business education is a bit of a waste that <laughs> uh, they'd be better off. Well, I mean, you could take certain skill courses like, say, accounting or statistics or things like that, because those are useful things. But for the most part what businesses want, but nobody ever listens to what they really want. They don't want somebody who's had a business major. They want someone who has uh, good quantitative skills, good writing skills, good verbal skills. And most importantly, and I hear it from every employer I've ever talked to, good critical thinking skills. Mm. Where do you learn those? You learn them in the liberal arts. And so schools need to change their rap and stop acting like trade schools, especially now, because 
There, you cannot possibly, none of us can possibly educate our students for a particular job, maybe accounting. But aside from that, there's no job that we educate people for, and they're always changing. So I think that that's, I would like the world to start saying, let's, let's send people to school so they can become better citizens, better parents, better human beings, as opposed to let's send them to school so so-and-so will hire them. I think that's great. And I think it I think it brings important examination to this assumption that we are not multifaceted beings and selves. I think sometimes there is this notion that uh, our economic reality should should dominate who we are. Uh, but I certainly don't feel that way myself. Um, you mentioned you mentioned Aristotle's take on leisure, too, which segues nicely to something else I wanted to ask you about. There's this neologism well i don't know how new it is at this point i think it's it's saturated the culture um of side hustle i'm sure you're aware of this term someone's side hustle something they do for money in addition to their main job i think uh being a lyft or uber driver has become a, a common form of side hustle for many people it's their uh, main or primary source of income but for many other people they do it as a side hustle this it's interesting how i think something done for more money now serves as a proxy for leisure and mm. it certainly doesn't strike me as leisure <laughs> doing doing a side hustle for more money i guess I'm, I'm just wondering your your general thoughts on on this concept side hustle well yeah i mean it's we we could say they used to have a funny expression for this and that was uh, working for pin money it's an old fashioned expression uh, for the extra money and um so the side hustle is is more about time than it is about leisure. And that's where, when you talk about leisure, see in Aristotle's view, leisure is free time. And by that he means, he sort of defines work as when you're tied to necessity, you have to do it. The side hustle is a little deceptive because if you're an Uber driver, you freely choose to do that. So you certainly have a little bit more freedom than say a nine to five job. Um, but at the same time, it's not completely free because you have to pick up and drop off people. So there are structures to what you do. So you can't call it leisure. And um, I mean, it is a pity that so many jobs don't pay people enough to actually live. Um, so yeah, the side hustle, definitely not leisure. And, and what I worry about is two things. First that people have to work two jobs and rarely have leisure. And second, most people don't know how to use leisure anyway. Um, for most people, leisure is something you have to have money for um, because they haven't cultivated any other interests. And that's, that's another aspect of all of this that is interesting when I compare it to say, people in other countries. Um, for example, I'm, I'm married to a Dutchman and I go to the Netherlands. Well, I've been going to the Netherlands for many years to see our family. What's interesting there is there's a lot more people who have very fascinating things they do in their free time. Um, I d discovered an old friend of mine. He binds books when he has free time. That is his hobby. Wow, That's fascinating. His leisure, yes. Never met an American who does that. <laughs> Oh, and they do all sorts of things and they take classes and they do lessons and stuff, but they do it for fun, not to make money. And where where do you see a lot of Americans doing that? Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. I read a Harris poll uh, just this week that said 82% of employed Americans would rather have a shorter work week. And we know that uh, a vast reservoir of social science research indicates that people would be healthier and happier if they worked less. And managers should also be able to get on board with this research because it also indicates that productivity would stay at the same level, uh, if not improve. What do you think, Joanne, are some of the, what is what explains then the the resistance to working less and, quote, living more? Do you think it's, is it mostly a matter of inertia that we're just so used to working hard at this point? What are some of the reasons that we, we've had this research and this knowledge, but we don't seem to quite be uh, taking it in wholesale? Right. Well, part of it, especially in American culture, is the status of working a lot. 
So notice if you want to be ingratiating to someone, you will open if you call them or you go to see them. I know that you're really busy Mm. (laughs) because that's a way of flattering them because it means you're an important person. You're an on-demand person. What you do is important. And and it's it's a way of scraping and bowing in some, to some extent. So it's it's a it's a peculiar thing that in our culture, even though people would like to have more leisure time, uh, being perceived as someone who's not working a lot is not a good thing. So I mean, I've had people come and say, "Oh, well, I know how busy you are. You're really busy." And I say, "No, I'm not busy." And then they look at you like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> this actually happens every time my mother calls me. <laughs> Oh, okay. I always say, Mom, please call me anytime. I don't know why you think I'm <laughs> working around the clock all the time. Right. So, <laughs> so part of it is this weird status thing. Um, but there have been lot. Yeah, you're right. There have been lots of studies that show if given the choice between um, getting more pay or being able to take a course related to your work or other things or, or having a few hours off, most people would pick time. Um, but then the question is, what do they do with the time? Well, a lot of times what they pick the time for is they've got things to do with their kids. Uh, they have things to do with their house, but basically they have the kind of work that they have to do outside of work to do. Um, right. But it, it is unfortunately very rare that people want the time to spend more time painting watercolors or things like that. So, it's it's a busy world we're in, and um, there's no reason why work has to take up so much time. One of my favorite studies uh, was about, you know, Kellogg that makes cereal during the Depression. They cut the work hours of everybody uh, during the week, and what they found is they got the same produ- productivity with less work hours uh, during this period of time, partly because people were so grateful to be kept employed. Um, but part and because of that, they they worked harder than they work when they were working the full, you know, 40 or whatever hour weeks. So so time understanding the relationship between time. Work and leisure is 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 very important because we often confuse them all. Um, mm. And leisure should be free time, time when you're free to do whatever you want, not time that you're free to clean your house or pick up your kids from school. I was struck by one sentence in your great book, The Working Life. You wrote, what is most interesting and distinctive about human life is what we do after basic needs are met. Uh, Mm -hmm. I found that to be quite resonant. And I don't think uh, for, and again, I don't want to be tone deaf to the context. I know that unemployment is at its highest rate, uh, its highest level compared to the Great Depression. And many people are really, in a sort of contraction where um, they they must focus on basic needs. Many people are looking for jobs. Many people are, you know, just getting by, paying rent uh, one month to the next. But but in terms of uh, reimagining the possibilities for again, as you say, how we can not conflate time, work, and leisure, and uh, really appreciate each of them for what they are in proportion. Uh, I think I think it would make a happier, healthier world and society. I, I also, I want to mention something that was so, it was both disturbing and, and funny and interesting to me when I read um, your your writing on Frederick Winslow Taylor, who, who was this, this big figure that maybe you could tell listeners a little bit more about. Um, you didn't go into detail about this, but there was a woman you mentioned who wrote a book in 1911 named Mary Pattinson, and she basically took some of the concepts of scientific management and applied them to homemaking tasks. And <laughs> she timed everything down to the second. Right. And I remember reading that and I made a note in the margins saying, wow, this might be this might be the beginning of human as robot, where we think <laughs> of ourselves as expert doing machines. Now, of course, people were working on conveyor belts maybe before 1911, but that was so striking to me that there was such excitement around productivity and efficiency and time optimization. But, you know, looking at that now, 109 years later, I found it, I found it disturbing because again, what we're struggling most with is uh, understanding what is interesting and distinctive about human life beyond basic needs. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I imagine that if, if they took that really home economics really seriously, you'd end up with a Stepford wife. Yeah, right. Some sort. But, you know, here's the thing. And in the book, I also quote, again, another great quote by Aristotle. He said, if a needle could thread itself and a plectrum touch the lyre without a hand to guide it, the masters would not be, need slaves. Mm. I think there's been a desire throughout history to have robots to have people work like robots. I mean, slavery is the best example. You completely take away the humanity and the freedom of someone. And, you know, through whips and chains, you make them do your bidding. And what's what's fascinating is scientific management made some sense in the industrial era when they were trying to get that kind of productivity out of people. And it was kind of the people were the hands and the managers were the brains. And they had mechanized everything. But what I think is that we've never grown out of scientific management. There is this idea on jobs that time there means you're working. And that's not necessarily the way work in the modern world is constructed. So um, I think we, we would love to have, a lot of people would love to have mechanized workers. And we've tried to do that with artificial intelligence. We've tried to do that um, in, in many ways. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who was saying, you know, all these students go and study accounting in business school and eventually they'll be replaced by machines. And it, it's a rather profound thought, but right. <laughs> why not have a machine? You know, I mean, artificial intelligence and software, it's not hard to imagine that someone could do accounting with software as opposed to a person. So, so we really need to rethink our attitudes towards work. And again, scientific management's getting the most work in the least amount of time. We have never gotten rid of that mindset, either implicitly or ex- explicitly. It shows up in all sorts of places. And I think it's it's telling, right, that I think the response to uh, the imminent waves of automation, uh, some of which have already hit the shores of culture, is mm-hmm. met with more panic and fear than uh, than delight, and I think part of that has to do with our uh, our sort of collective inability to conceive of a life of true leisure, maybe in the Aristotelian sense. If we if we were maybe more truly comfortable with free time in the freest sense, uh, maybe then we would we would welcome robots doing more work for us. But I, I don't think that's the norm in America now. No, I, I think you're right, and and you know when. One of the things that happens, so if we think about washing machines and dishwashers and stuff like that, those are great technological inventions because they saved us a lot of work. And, you know, remember that expression, a labor-saving device? Well, a lot of technology today is not labor-saving. I mean, email is not a labor-saving device. Um, It's not to save labor that we use technology. It's to produce more. And that's, that's a good point. Yeah, and that's that's where we get lost because, you know, often people lose their jobs to technology, but sometimes their jobs become even more difficult because of technology and because of the expectations put on them. Even a lot of people working at home today, there are all sorts of monitoring systems for people working at home. And um, those monitoring systems are pretty intrusive. And they're there to monitor productivity in a way that in, in real time, no one's been monitored before. Yeah, that's that's so true. That's so true. I wanna I wanna pivot, Joanne, to a more granular question about uh, how people experience work. Um, I wanted to ask you about what you've seen through your years of research and thinking and talking to people about how individuals attempt to squeeze their identities into work personae. Uh, really one of the seeds for JobsCast was to understand how people are actually feeling on the job, what they're actually doing, uh, how often do they avoid their work and just go fill up their coffee? How often are they chatting as opposed to actually working? I'm very interested in the granular details of work. Um, but I think I, I, identity, it's both, it's interesting, that's both a granular question, I think, but also a, a huge philosophical question. Um, so I'm wondering, 
I, I guess to crystallize the question a bit, what are some patterns maybe you've seen uh, about people struggling to uh, fit their their sense of self into a, a work role, and then maybe examples you have of where you know people seem to do that pretty successfully. Well, thing about identity is you can either take your identity from what you perceive everybody else thinks of your job, or you can project the identity you want to have. So there's an internal and an external way of thinking of identity. So what's been fascinating recently is this celebration of all of these heroes who are uh, essential workers during this virus. Well, that's a, that's a massive change in the external perception of these people we see riding around the city carrying food to people. So my my I what I've been very curious about, and I haven't had a chance to really talk to them, is is what does that feel like to all of a sudden go from somebody who has what people may have perceived of as a very low level job to being these heroic characters who are bringing food to those locked inside. So internal and external identity is, is, is a very interesting thing. On the other hand, and I think I use this example in the book, there are people who uh, I still remember uh, this one of the cleaning ladies at when I was at Warden who would come into the office and she would I would chat with her. And it turns out her identity had a whole lot more to do with the fact that um, she was really active and ran some group at her church and other things that seemed to be her main identity. And the fact that she uh, emptied trash cans at the Wharton school was really not a major part of her when you, when you talk to her. So some people pull their identity from these, what we would call leisure free time activities and, and they create what they are on the job. It's like the bus driver. I still remember a bus driver I used to get in Philadelphia he would sing out his stop. Well, he had created his own persona of him as a bus driver that he made. That was not the external world's perception of a bus driver. It was his perception of him as a bus driver. So we all have it in us to create our identities in relation to work. I think what's very sad and can be depressing for people is when they perceive that the rest of the world looks at the job they do as a lowly job and they take that in, they internalize that notion. Yeah, it also seems that because we have this uh, most common of conversation questions, what do you do? Identity mm-hmm. is often funneled through through this question. But And, and as you say, maybe for um, the woman you met at Wharton, um, she has all of these other fascinating aspects of her life, but there's not really a, a willingness as encapsulated in our, our conversational norms to to find them. Um, but, but it's great that you did. And I'm glad that we know more about, more about her life. I'm Uh also, you, you write about that in the book, actually, too. You, you say that, uh, maybe there was some resistance in Europe to this question of what do you do this ubiquitous American question, but it seems to be coming more normal in other parts of the world. I was thinking about that in relation to how we often talk to children too, where someone will, you know, uh, you visit an aunt or like a toddler visits an aunt or uncle or, or maybe a kid a little older. And people always want to ask young kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? They never ask kids, how do you want to live? Yeah. Now, I know how do you want to live is, is something that maybe asks for more philosophical reflection. But uh, I think I think we often underestimate the imaginative powers of children. In many cases, yeah. they might be able to answer that question better than we can. So. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how you, uh, given that you think about this stuff and write about it a lot, do you have any sort of uh, particular sensitivities to the way that people converse about these topics with uh, what do you do? Or uh, are are there other questions that that you think might be better alternatives to ask? Well, you know, I often find it fascinating when someone wants to find out what someone they've just met does and that person hedges. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can almost see a kind of discomfort because, of course, when you answer the question what you've done, you what you do for a living, you have told everyone 
basically what kind of money you make, what kind of education you've had. It's a whole measuring of class uh, going on in, a, in an instant almost. I mean, just naming it. I mean, saying you're unemployed, I mean, often people don't even want to talk to you because that's <laughs> interesting. Um, but yeah, it would, it would be interesting to ask children how they want to live. And I also, though, by the way, there are certain people who are fascinating, who ever since they were children wanted to be what they are. And th- yes. they're very curious. I mean, it, it's a very rare breed that knows that, but but there are people like that. But, yeah, I think uh, in, in a lot of countries, they're more interested in who your relatives are. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that gives the same information. Are you related to the so-and-so family? So family name mm. can be quite a, quite a big thing. Um, but yeah, asking who you are, I mean, it is almost like asking how much money do you make? Mm. <laughs> you know? Which, yeah, which, I mean, it, that's interesting too, because Americans are obsessed with money and terribly afraid of talking about it, frankly. Right, um, right. Yeah, which, which we do which, all the time. Exactly, right, in code and in all these hedging and qualified ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Joanne, I want to I want to go back a little further in history. This was something that I thought was so interesting. I think any readers interested in the history of work and its relationship to religion will really like some of the first few chapters of your book. I was raised Catholic, and I was I had a vague recollection of of the history of confession, but you write in the book about how in 1215 uh, confession becomes mandatory. Um, Tell the listeners, Joanne, how did confessional manuals play a key role in framing occupational consciousness all the way back 805 years ago? (laughs) So if we look at, at Catholicism, European Catholicism in the Middle Ages and in the early Middle Ages, there's no emphasis per se on on working hard. So you know the lilies of the field don't work. Um, there's lots of things in the Bible that talk about it. So work isn't considered uh, very important. And of course, the reason why it wasn't was the idea. There were a couple of social reasons why it's good to keep the people down, the peasants, the serfs. I mean, there's a whole history of that. But but the reason why was that the idea of being acquisitive led to some of the deadly sins of greed, gluttony, uh, etc. So so work was not considered great, and it was considered fraught with potential sins. So when confession was required, there are a lot of priests who might have to hear confessions of people who say you're a priest out in the country and you've got to hear a confession from someone from a port city. So there are a lot of things that went on in trade and in occupations that maybe the priest wasn't familiar with. They may not know much about what someone in shipping does, for example. So they created these confession manuals, and they said there are certain certain kinds of vices associated with certain occupations. So, for example, you had to watch out for lust in innkeepers, gluttony among cooks. And, of course, here's an old saw. Uh, greed in lawyers <laughs> and sloth could be a sin in monks. So I got very interested in sloth because sloth is not the sin of being lazy. It's the sin of not caring. And in monks, they would be slothful if in, in one of the books I read after a long meal in a hot climate, if they said their afternoon prayers, but didn't really say them. <laughs> so um, all of these things, sloth is, uh, sloth is fascinating because the sin of not caring takes place in workplaces all over. I mean, we all know exactly. how people go to work and simply don't care. So anyway, this became a way to assess how people's everyday lives, the work they did in their everyday lives, affected their moral character. And um, it became fascinating over the years to read how this got uh, ensconced in things like canon law and other things. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly interesting. You, you do a great treatment of that period of history. And for those interested, there's there's so much more uh, in the book. Um, Joanne, let's, let's turn for a few more questions um, to 
your own journey. One thing that I was struck by when reading your bio, you identify uh, as a as a philosopher. That seems to be your your core training. But of course, you've been running a leadership institute for some time. Um, and there's uh, this stereotypical notion of philosophers. I'm sure you're well acquainted with of them sort of having their head in the clouds. And maybe we don't always think of philosophy as translating to practical action. But I think your you know your life speaks loudly to the contrary. It seems that you very much embedded your philosophy into some of your thinking about leadership. So take us through uh, that that merger uh, of of philosophy, but also this very grounded thinking about about leadership and ethics in the workplace. Well, let me just start with a, a little story. I'm not sure if it's in the book. So I started out my career, I started teaching in 1975 in a philosophy department. I was still doing my graduate work, my PhD work. And I had this moment that occurred in a faculty meeting. And a faculty meeting with a bunch of philosophers is almost like a Monty Python movie. Um, we kind of mumble and jumble around and <laughs> throw ideas around, and you never know what anybody's going to say. Anyway, we were talking about the fact that I was teaching at a LaSalle University in Philadelphia, and we were talking about the fact that we didn't seem to get a lot of students who wanted to take our courses. Um, I think part of the problem is an awful lot of courses seem to focus on St. Thomas and, you know, undergraduates just aren't compelled by him. <laughs> so I was one of them. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he's a great philosopher, but they weren't. And so we started talking about, well, what courses did people like? What were our best sellers? And we had two courses that students liked. The first course was called Love and Human Sexuality for obvious reasons. So we had lots of students who wanted to take that. And the second course, which is very popular in the 70s, was a course on the philosophy of death and dying. And so we had a lot of people there. And so we were sitting there and I thought, well, we have sex and we have death. What do you do <laughs> between sex and death? Well, the answer is we work. Well, we eat too. I was thinking eating, but you can't really have a course on the eating. So we work. And so I came up with that suggestion. And they said, great idea. So you design the course and teach it. So I did. And it it opened a whole new door for me because I started teaching it. It became one of our most popular courses. And um, I would teach it in the evening school. So I would get all these people who had come from all kinds of jobs right from work to take my course on work. Well, needless to say, my class taught me a lot more than I taught them. Uh, because I had everyone from a, a boilermaker to nurses, policemen, uh, all sorts of people like that in my classroom. So I basically started way back. Well, I think we started the course in 77. Just hearing for, for the nine years I taught that course, just hearing about people's work and about their lives. And at that time, also Studs Terkel's book came out, which, of course, to me is the best book ever written on work. And... Um, I just started learning about what that was like. I mean, here I was. I'm, I'm an academic. I've always studied philosophy, and I was teaching philosophy. But basically, they were the ones who taught me about work. And so then, I mean, I, I love to tell my students who think they have to have their whole lives planned out. I had no idea how my life would go. I just knew I liked to study philosophy. I was amazed anybody would give me a job teaching it. <laughs> it didn't pay me very much. When I was teaching philosophy, I had to subsidize myself by working in restaurants and doing all sorts of other things. But but um, what happened next was that I, um, I when I got my Ph.D., I just applied for some jobs. And there was a fellowship at Harvard Business School, and I applied for it. And... Um, I didn't think they were going to give it to me, but I thought, well, it sounds sort of interesting. It was in business ethics, so it was related to work. And then I went there and I, I didn't think, again, didn't think I would get the job. So I went to the interview. I was very relaxed <laughs> and, and because I thought this is ridiculous because I was sort of a Marxist and I thought this is ridiculous that these people would hire me. <laughs> And I remember uh, the the senior professor saying to me, he was a lovely guy, but he said to me very sternly, so you want to study, you've been studying work. Well, you know, how would you go about studying work? Who would you talk to? 
And I said, well, um, probably want to talk to some union people. And he looked at me, and said, at Harvard Business School, we don't talk to union people. <laughs> and, and I just turned and I, when I was young, I wasn't afraid of anybody. I said, well, maybe you should. <laughs> and that was an appropriate response. Yes, and apparently that helped me get my job there. So, wow, so that's up, great. So I ended up in business ethics. And so it kind of organically followed from there. And then one day after I had been teaching at Wharton, I um, someone called me and they had heard me give a speech. And they said, there's this endowed chair at the University of Richmond uh, where they want someone to come and help start a school of leadership studies. And this was back in 1991. And... I said, sure, I'll talk to them. And so they invited me down and I got that job and I was there for 25 years. But then I started thinking, well, you know, maybe rather than retire, I should do something different. So I'm a big proponent of studying the humanities and the humanities, I think, needs to be in business schools. So I thought, you know, maybe I should go back to a business school. So then I got recruited for this uh, to head up this institute, and it was on leadership and ethics, which is what I do, and it allows me to live in New York, and I like New York City a lot, and here I am. But none of it was planned. It's always just sort of taking advantage of opportunities. And the one thing, when I reflect back, and I like to tell my students, is that I, I always said yes to things. People ask me to go places, they ask me to do things, it's very rare I ever say no, because I don't think you know how things, jobs or other things are going to turn out. Uh, so saying yes to experience and saying yes to opportunities is is really important, but you got to be willing to take the risk. And sometimes people are just too risk adverse or too scared about what will happen if they don't do things the right way. Uh, but life kind of happens and you just have to take what you're given and work with it. Yeah, I really like that. Thanks for that reflection. I I think a lot about this dichotomy of work hard and work smart. And mm -hmm. I think what you're describing in your journey of openness and saying yes and knowing that you really liked philosophy and then seeing what job opportunities came of it and then other opportunities unfolded as you continued to say yes. It's, it's interesting because I, I don't think working hard and working smart are necessarily oppositional, but they can be. I think that there's there's a way in which maybe the sort of hard work we were talking about earlier in our conversation about the work that many Americans in corporate settings use as a badge of honor. I've encountered this with friends of mine who who work at big four accounting firms and they're they're exhausted, they're fatigued, and they don't want to be at their work. And in the same breath, they're, you could see the pride in them saying, oh, I put in 70 hours during busy season. And I am always telling them, it's, it's always busy season for you. It's not, it doesn't <laughs> seem to be seasonally specific at all. You're, you're constantly talking about being overworked. Um, do, I, I, do you have any other thoughts to add on this, on this notion of working hard, working smart? It sounds like you've, you've done both. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, you know, working smart, almost, you have to be careful about that because often what you think is smart is actually not smart. <laughs> so people can be very proud of work, putting in really long hours, but then the question is, well, are they proud of what they did during those long hours? And those are actually yes, two yes. different things. Yes. And um, what I say near the end of the book is, has anybody ever sat in their rocking chair at the age of 90 and said, I wish I had spent more time at the office. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it just doesn't happen, does it? So, I mean, ideally, you know, there was a time when people talked about, uh, well, in Europe, they've had lo lots of conversations about 35-hour uh, work week and shortening work weeks and, you know, the end of work. There's whole discussions on, on that. And... Again, it gets us back to where we started, and that is, you know, educating people to know how to use their free time or to how to cultivate their free time. Um, maybe an important thing in a world where perhaps there won't be as much work as there is now, where we do have to entertain things like guaranteed minimum wage and some of these other things coming down the pike. So 
I mean, building our capacity to live good lives is what education ought to be about. And you don't all have to go to the go to universities for it. But I think we need to stop pretending that all education is about work and have it really be more about life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It makes me it makes me think, too, of course, about the present moment where when when we see the Minneapolis uh, City Council willing to disband the police officers, whether or not you think that's that's a good idea. I think um, it's it's a really sort of uh, fascinating node to look at societally in terms of how indicative can that be of of other change. I'm within the past week, I would say, although there's been so much tragedy and there's been much to mourn, um, I've I've been feeling uh, increasingly hopeful about possibilities for positive change. How about you? Oh yeah, I mean I think this has been uh, fantastic. I mean. It, it's a period of time where we're. This is an incredible social experiment because everybody's at home. I mean, most people aren't working, and now all of a sudden they can open their eyes and see this horrible racial injustice and brutality of police and other things that have been going on under their noses, but we've been too busy to notice. Um, so that that's been really wonderful. But then the other problem that that we have to face is is one of my favorite expressions from a, a old union leader is the problem with unemployment is that you never get a day off mm. and you, a lot yes. of people i think are worried about that so that while well, on the one hand they can see what's going on better on the other hand uh it's getting to be kind of oppressive because we all need to have a notion of self-efficacy that comes from work and when you don't work you start to feel useless and you find it much more difficult i mean it's a lot of people are probably having a difficult time viewing this as leisure the kind of leisure that we talked about earlier that's true i'm personally grateful to be in relatively in a relatively stable financial situation but that said i've described the past 3 months as a haunted staycation i've been I've been reading and trying to write, but there's this this real, you know, haunted, stressed out sense. But again, with an accompanying uh, with accompanying uh, possibilities for good and for change as well. Joanne, let's let's bring this wonderful conversation to a close. I, I have two uh, two more questions slash thoughts to share with you. One, um, if if you're interested, I, I think I think you will be, given your your interest in the humanities. I have a very short segment that I'd like to do called Poem Zone. Um, I, I think injecting poetry into literally anything uh, is always <laughs> is always fun and interesting. So I'm going to read you a, a very short poem by Langston Hughes, and I would just like to I'd just like to have you share your reaction with the listeners. Would that be okay? That'd be great. Wonderful. And the poem goes like this: I'm so tired of waiting. Aren't you? For the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. <laughs> Interesting. So there can be a benefit to waiting if it allows you to do something that you wouldn't have normally done, I guess. But maybe that's that's what we, while we're waiting, we're going to cut the world into right now. Um, my favorite line, if I can give you a poem. Back, oh, yes, please. Um, is that, it? you know, we're all s- stuck at home in a way. But what makes home superior to work is the fact uh, that Robert Frost brought up in The Death of a Hired Man, where he said, home is a place that when you go there, they have to let you in. <laughs> and I don't think any nice. workplace is. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That's a nice thought to that's a nice thought to take home. <laughs> Joanne, finally, can you can you share with listeners um, any media recommendation? Well, I think if anybody has not seen the movie Office Space, they ought to because <laughs> I think that's the most brilliant commentary on work. It is a classic. Uh, and and we all need a good laugh, and it is hilariously funny. That's a great so recommendation. <laughs> I, I would strongly uh, recommend that. 
Joanne, thank you so much for joining Jobscast. This was a, a rangy and wonderful conversation. Uh, thanks again. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.